Today's program is the third in the series of events that examine the role of women in modern America, culture, and society. And I invite you to return at noon on December 5th for the final event in the series, a lecture with Harvard University lecturer and cultural anthropologist Kurdwin Luz on the body politics of women. I'm sorry. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> okay, on the, on the body politics of women's lands. Our speaker this afternoon is author and journalist Liza Mundy. Her 2012 book, The Richest Sex, was named one of the top nonfiction books of the year by Washington Post and a noteworthy book by the New York Times Book Review. Her 2008 book, Michelle, a biography of First Lady Michelle Obama, was a New York Times bestseller and has been translated into 16 languages. She is a senior fellow at New America, a nonpartisan think tank, and is one of the country's foremost experts on women and work issues. She writes widely for publications, including The Atlantic, The New York Times, State, and Time. Ms. Mundy is a frequent commenter on national television and radio shows such as The Colbert Report, Today's Show, Good Morning America, Democracy Now!, NPR's All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition, among many others. She has an A.B. from Princeton University and an M.A. in English Literature from the University of Virginia. This afternoon, uh, Liza will discuss her newest book, Code Girls, the untold story of American women codebreakers of World War II, which Kyrgyz describes as a sleek, compelling narrative that is well-researched, compellingly written, and a crucial addition to the literature of American involvement in World War II. Please join me in welcoming Liza to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you so much for that nice introduction. Can everybody hear me okay? Good. Let me know if you can't. Um, so it's very meaningful for me to be here in this gorgeous setting uh, and also to be in Massachusetts, uh, which actually produced um, uh, many, many of the code breakers in my book. I interviewed one of them uh, on, on Cape Cod at her home on Cape Cod a couple of years ago where she was still kayaking and sailing. So um, a very, very formidable group of women, and it's been my great pleasure to get to tell their story. It's also meaningful to be delivering a lecture so close to Veterans Day because many of these women did join the military and, and served our country uh, in, in a very, very important way. So uh, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just great to be here. So thank you. Um, I wanted to uh, begin with, uh, this is a, uh, I also understand that my lecture is part of a series called The Culture of American Womanhood, uh, Womanhood. and I, I think that this photo is particularly apt. This is the May Court at Goucher College in May of 1942. Uh, Goucher, as you may know, wasn't one of the Seven Sisters, but it was very similar to the Seven Sisters. Located at the time in urban Baltimore, it was a very um, highly regarded, demanding, four-year liberal arts college for women uh, at a time when only 4% of American women did graduate from a four-year college. Uh, great in the sciences, the dean of Goucher, Dorothy Stimson, was an expert in Copernicus. An English professor, Ola Winslow, was the first woman to win a Pulitzer Prize in biography. So really top-notch faculty. Uh, but this was also a time in American life when women who were the graduates of fine institutions like this could really only expect one job to be reliable 
reliably available to them when they graduated, and that was teaching school. So, uh, so even as women went to these colleges, often on scholarship, a lot of these girls were Baltimore, urban Baltimore uh, women who lived at home and attended on scholarship or worked their way through Goucher, uh, even as they were uh, working hard to get their educations, there wasn't a lot available to them in terms of uh, employment after college. Uh, architecture schools were largely shut uh, close to women, engineering, med school might admit a, a one or two women to become doctors, uh, law schools were pretty much closed to women. So that was the world that they were looking at. So there was a lot of pressure at places like Goucher and also Wellesley and Smith and Radcliffe to, uh, to get married while you were there. So there was kind of a strange mixture of, um, of rigorous academics and heavy emphasis on marriage. Uh, and at Wellesley, uh, anybody who here went to Wellesley or knows somebody who did, there was a, um, hoop roll at the at the end of the year, a senior class hoop roll, and the legend was that the winner of the hoop roll would be the class's first bride. Uh, and in fact, many women left school early in order to get married, and there was actually a section of the Wellesley yearbook that was devoted to uh, engagements and marriages. So the pressure to get, to get your MRS degree was also very heavy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, but, but obviously what's taking place also in May of 1942 is that America's at war. We've been at war for six months. Uh, these women at Goucher were 20 minutes away from Annapolis, so they had dated incessantly at Annapolis and were often engaged to, uh, or, um, or dating or the sisters of, uh, graduates of Annapolis who were now serving in both the Atlantic and the Pacific. Um, and this would also be true of the women at the Seven Sisters Colleges here on the Eastern Seaboard. Everybody knew, of course everybody in America knew somebody who was in the fighting and often people who were on ships. But what I love about this photo is that even as these women are being offered up for the virginal sacrifice or whatever exactly it is that a May court is supposed to stand for, presumably chosen for their beauty or their charm or their grace or whatever, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, two of the women uh, were... Uh, and let me see if I can do the later thing. Yeah. So this woman, Jackie Jenkins, who when she got married would become Jackie Jenkins Nye, mother of Bill Nye the science guy, and Gwyneth Gaminder had already been selected by the U.S. Navy to learn code breaking, to learn to be cryptanalysts. So even as they were seemingly graduating into a traditional sort of women's role, they were training in a locked classroom with Ole Winslow uh, to learn the arcane history of code breaking, which dated back to the European Renaissance and even before that. Uh, they were learning to do frequency counts. They were learning how many letters in the English language uh, appeared together or never appeared. They were drawing strips of paper through holes in cardboard. They were learning how to read something called a visionaire table that also dated back to the Renaissance as a way of scrambling letters. So uh, they were doing this in top, top secret. And this was also true of women at Smith and Wellesley and Radcliffe. The US Navy had recruited all of these young women into a secret code-breaking project um, and would bring them to Washington as soon as it could to begin breaking enemy signals. So um, they couldn't tell anybody what they were doing. They couldn't tell their parents, their boyfriends, uh, any, or their classmates what, what they were engaged uh, now suddenly in doing. So um, that was taking place at all of these colleges. Uh, Pembroke College actually was initially at Brown, was initially uh, recruited by the U.S. Navy, but 
Uh, it blabbed. It wanted to get credit for uh, for its service to the war effort, and so it allowed a little bit of publicity to leak out. So Pembroke and Brown were both blacklisted from the um, from the Navy's uh, very secret code-breaking training project. And the reason, of course, that this was happening was because on December 7, 1941, America was uh, was attacked by the Japanese uh, in a surprise attack. Uh, it, the Japanese thought that it would bring us to our knees and that we would allow some sort of negotiation peace that would allow them to keep a lot of the territory they captured simultaneously in the Pacific. Instead, it led to a great outpouring of determination and patriotism. But within the Navy itself, it led to chaos and recrimination. And uh, the Navy had known that something was going to happen in the Pacific. We knew ever since France had fallen in the summer of 1940 that we would eventually enter World War II. We didn't know when. Uh, but the fact that the Navy knew that something was going to happen in the Pacific but didn't think that it might happened where our, where our Pacific fleet was actually uh, headquartered and, 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 and moored at the time was regarded as a massive intelligence failure. And it's, it's hard to believe in this day of proliferating intelligence agencies, but America had almost no intelligence at the time that we entered World War II. We had no CIA. We had no spies in foreign countries. Uh, we obviously had not anticipated the, the Pearl Harbor attack, and we needed to scale up our intelligence gathering immediately. So this is why the young women at Goucher and also at Smith and Wellesley and Radcliffe and Bryn Mawr and Mount Holyoke uh, that selected college seniors in the class of 42 received a secret summons to meet with deans of math and astronomy. The women had been specially selected for math skills, language skills, for their loyalty, for their tenacity, for their ab ability to uh, withstand frustration. And, uh, and they were asked two questions in their initial meeting. Do you like crossword puzzles, and are you engaged to be married? Uh, and uh, the correct answer to the first, obviously, was yes. The correct answer to the second was no. A number of the women actually lied and said, that they weren't engaged because whatever they were being invited to do sounded a lot more interesting than just sitting around <laughs> and waiting to see if their fiancés and their brothers would be okay. Uh, and the opportunity to serve the war effort was enormously important to these women uh, and also to be suddenly able to use their talent and all their training and all their, their math skills uh, and their learning. So it's actually interesting. In the National Archives, when I was doing my reporting, I actually found the source of their recruitment. The Navy had been recruiting male intelligence officers from the Ivy League for uh for a number of years, and they had a correspondence course training a few men in code breaking and crypt analysis. So this was a memo that was produced every month saying, you know, who was taking the course, how many people were. Uh, it was a monthly correspondence course that people could sort of take on their own. And, and these memos have been generated for a number of years. Obviously, even before Pearl Harbor, the Navy was starting to anticipate that it was going to need more. So somebody in the U.S. Navy had the bright idea that if the men are going to be shipping out, maybe we should look to the women. So here's a, a memo in which they actually say new source women's colleges. So they started meeting with Mildred McAfee and uh, Virginia Gildersleeve at Barnard and the presidents of Smith and Wellesley even before Pearl Harbor to see uh, how women could serve the war effort. And these deans and presidents were very, very eager not only to defend American freedom and, and liberty and freedom of thought from fascism and totalitarianism, totalitarianism, but they also realized that this might be a way to open up graduate schools to women, to open up more professional opportunities 
opportunities to women and to enable them to show their leadership skills. Uh, so they were obviously very eager to help the war effort and had started meeting as early as October to see how they could set up these secret training courses on their campuses. Uh, and this is just another... Um, uh, another uh, evidence of how the, the training was going forward once the Navy got started, and of course they needed to do it as quickly as possible. So uh, the Navy was starting to break codes in the Pacific Ocean. We had an agreement with England uh, that they would take the lead in the Atlantic, where uh, our soldiers and sailors were already at the mercy of German U-boats, and we were very involved in the Atlantic naval effort as well. But we would have lead responsibility for the Pacific, which is an immense ocean uh, and, and very difficult to anticipate where a ship is going to be in the Pacific. Uh, so that was the Navy's effort, uh, you know, for several months after Pearl Harbor and throughout the war. But the U.S. Army also needed code breakers because around the same time as Pearl Harbor and really almost instantaneously, the Japanese captured Guam, it captured the Philippines, it captured any number of, of, of other territories and land masses in the Pacific, and the Japanese Army was headquartered there and was using a completely different code system to communicate between the islands and also on supply ships. It's, it's impossible to overemphasize how many different signal systems were being employed during World War II. It was a global war taking place on land masses and oceans all over the, all over the world. Signals had to, had to be transmitted for thousands of miles at a time. Admiral Donitz had to communicate with his U-boats over thousands of miles as he micromanaged their movements. So there were radio signals being transmitted daily, thousands and thousands in different encrypted systems. This was really the beginning of encryption. So these women were being trained basically to hack into enemy communication systems uh, and also to do cybersecurity for our own systems. So this was the beginning of computer hacking, and it was the beginning of cybersecurity. And the Army, so the Army also needed code breakers. Um, it also needed to turn to women. Because the Navy had sewn up the northeastern seaboard, the Army decided to take a different approach and send handsome young Army officers to teachers' colleges throughout the South and the, and the Midwest. So uh, this is a woman that I interviewed, Dorothy Romali, who was studying to be a math teacher, which was her ardent hope in 1942. It was actually hard for women to get hired as math teachers, which was one of the reasons that a lot of schools had pretty small math departments for women, because they knew that um, even if they were going to be teachers, it was hard to be a math teacher. So the Army had this idea that it could lure young school teachers to Washington to break the Japanese Army codes by convincing them that they might make a marriage in Washington to a handsome young officer. Um, like the one who was standing in a post office or standing in a hotel to try to lure them away from school teaching. In fact, uh, many of the women also were trying to, were interested in getting out of hasty engagements because there was a lot of pressure to get married uh, when, when men started shipping out. So uh, Dorothy Romali was approached by the Dean of Women at Indiana State Teachers College. She was very, uh, very pleased to be serving the war effort. She instantly agreed. Uh, this woman, Dot Braden, uh, is the central character in my book. She was unhappily teaching high school, her first year out of Randolph-Macon Woman's College in Chatham, Virginia, uh, not far from where I grew up in Roanoke. Uh, she was making $900 a year as a school teacher. Uh, she was the oldest of a family of four children. Her mother was a single mother. She was not college educated. She was supporting the family as a secretary at a uniform factory in Lynchburg, Virginia. And, uh, and Dot's income was very important to her household. Uh, and, and Dot uh, had all 
the teaching at Chatham High School dumped on her in her first year because all of the men were shipping out to war, and a lot of the female teachers were leaving to marry the men. So she didn't care whether it was a handsome young army officer or who was at the uh, was at the post office in Lynchburg, Virginia. She just knew that the job was going to pay fourteen hundred dollars a year, which was you know almost fifty percent, which more than she was making as a teacher. She knew that she was going to be serving the war effort in Washington D.C. She actually the army didn't train its women in advance, so she signed up to take a job with the federal government without knowing what she was going to be doing. And she packed her suitcases and took got on the train to Washington, D.C., knowing she was going to be serving the war effort and having no idea what she was going to be doing when she got there. Um, and so like thousands and tens of thousands of women, uh, she, she found herself at Union Station uh, in October of 43 uh, and had all she had was an address. She didn't know where she was going to be going. And... Um, and so she, she was taken by taxi to the Army's code-breaking compound. The Army and the Navy had both set up massive code-breaking compounds in the Washington, D.C. area. So she got in a taxi cab for the first time in her life, being in Washington, D.C. for the first time in her life. She didn't have very much money. And the cab ride was so long that she, she was going into Arlington, which is where I live now, but she didn't even know that. Uh, and, and she was mostly worried that she wasn't going to have enough money for the cab ride because the federal government didn't even pay their, didn't even pay the women's way to Washington. So uh, she found her way to a massive code-breaking facility, and she stayed at a, uh, at a place called Arlington Farms that was a, uh, that Eleanor Roosevelt had comment that had ordered to be produced for the thousands of women who were arriving simultaneously in Washington. It was a 28-acre facility. Uh, a part, it's part of it is Arlington, it's Arlington Cemetery now. It's part of Arlington Cemetery. But it was this uh, hastily erected barracks where she, um, where she would live with 7,000 other women. It was called 28 Acres of Girls. Uh, so that's, that's what it was known as in Washington, D.C., as all of these women flooded into Washington to do top-secret work that they couldn't tell their families what it was. She was working at a place called Arlington Hall that had been a girls' school, um, the Army me threw the girls out of the girls' school so hastily that uh, when the code-breaking operation moved in, there were still like rugs and and, uh, and draperies, and some of the girls actually, uh, some of the students were still there, uh, and they built uh, huge temporary buildings where Dot, where where school teachers like Dot would be hastily trained in the Japanese in the system that was being used by the supply ships that were supplying the Japanese army all over the Pacific Ocean. It was a four-digit code group in which the Japanese would convert words like maru, which was the word for commercial ship, into a four-digit system like 6792 would be maybe the code group for maru. And then they would encrypt it with another four-digit number. They used an odd kind of addition called false math. Uh, and what Dot was trained to do was to strip out that encryption. So again, she was doing, she, she was doing hacking. She was doing decryption. The same thing that people at the NSA are doing now to try to get down to the code group. And she was learning uh, where in a message the word Maru might appear or the word debarking or embarking or troops or fuel or oil. So she was learning where stereotyped words might appear. These are some uh, photos from the National Archives. The women were very hastily trained. But I just wanted to go through them quickly to show you how many women were involved in these code-breaking efforts. These were former school teachers, and within a month, after coming to Washington, they were sinking Japanese ships. That's what they were doing. They were breaking the messages. 
the contents would be relayed to American submarine commanders in the Pacific who themselves didn't know where this intelligence had come from because even the submarine commanders weren't supposed to know that we were breaking codes because we couldn't have the enemy know that we had broken their code system because they would change it. So the women were set up in these enormous code systems. Dot remembers, I'm sorry, these enormous rooms Dot remembers that uh, that she would very quickly scan the messages that she would was given. She would do the math that she had to do to strip it down to the code group. Uh, and then she would jump up and she would take it to a woman named Miriam, who was the overlapper. And Miriam would overlap a number of different broken messages so they could try to figure out what certain code groups stood for, what might be the current code group for Maru, because the Japanese changed their code books periodically. So even when you learned what the code group was, it wouldn't stay the same. So they were constantly having to re-break into these message systems and Dot particularly remembers that there was a, the overlapper was named Miriam, and she was from New York City, and she was the first person that Dot had ever met from New York City. And there was a really funny um, culture clash at, at the Army code-breaking facility between the northern women and the southern women, uh, many of whom had never met before. Uh, and so Miriam would say things at the um, lunch table like, I have never yet met a southerner who can speak proper English. And and Dot would be offended. And, uh, and meanwhile, she would sort of enviously eye the diamond ring on Miriam's finger, which was a yellow diamond. I didn't even know that was a thing, but um, my daughter assures me that it is a thing. Uh, and so she would eye Miriam's yellow diamond, and she would think to herself that um, it was that it was probably a fake and that Miriam's fiancé was probably a fake also. So Dot and Miriam didn't really get along all that well, but they worked seamlessly together, and all of these women did. So the, the operation was just a massive assembly line, and it was deliberately patterned after the U.S. assembly line that we were also using to produce our tanks and our bombers. Uh, and, and so women would receive messages from teletype. They had often been encrypted with American encryption where, from the inter intercept station where they were plucked out of the air. We would encrypt them with American encryption, send them to these Washington facilities where they would strip out the American encryption in order to get down to the Japanese encryption, strip that out in order to get down to the code group, and then overlap the messages to try to figure out what the code group stood for and do it as quickly as possible so that the messages could get to the submarine commanders in time. There were women who were maintaining a giant Wikipedia section so that um, they were keeping track of all of the supply ships. A lot of the supply ships were former commercial ships, and they, they would have um, registries from Lloyd's of London and places that had insured these ships so they would they would know their specs. Uh, and so they could they could tell the code breakers what they needed to know about the contents of the uh, of the messages. These are some overlappers uh, and one of them might be Miriam, who knows. Um, this was actually a group of women who uh, who broke the radio the radio address system, each message had to begin with a, a separate code system that would tell where it, was, where it was going to, where it was coming from, where it was going to. And this was a group of women, and the one you'll see sitting by the dead plant, the little dead plant laughing down at her work, she was a 22-year-old English major from Russell Sage College who proved her genius uh, so rapidly that she would rise to become really the supervisor of a 100-person um, address code-breaking uh, group she would rise to become the first female deputy director of the NSA. So the National Security Agency is what grew out of the wartime code breaking. And Anne Cara Christie, that 22-year-old English major, was matching wits against Japanese cryptographers. And um, 
And what her group was able to do was essentially tell the U.S. military where the Japanese Army was headquartered, where it was moving to. If messages started being transmitted in a new direction to some place that they had never been transmitted to before. They knew that the Army might be on the move, that there was a new destination. So every day they were compiling for the Pentagon. This was a military intelligence unit compiling for the Pentagon what was called order of battle, which was where they thought the Japanese Army was that day and where it was likely to be moving. So this was a report that they generated every morning at 5 a.m. It would go right to the Pentagon and it would be used by, um, by the generals out in the Pacific to anticipate where the Army was. This was a completely different group of women who were breaking the diplomatic traffic. So so there were Japanese diplomats in Europe who were constantly talking to Hitler, Mussolini, uh, other Axis leaders. They were relaying back to Tokyo what they knew. Uh, so this was a diplomatic ciphered code system that had initially been broken by a woman named Genevieve Grochen before the war. Um, her name should be chiseled into government buildings. We were able to read this code system throughout the entire war. And because of it, among the many things that we knew was where the French coast was and was not well fortified. Uh, when we were planning the D-Day landings. The Japanese diplomats were able to tour the French coast with um, some of Hitler's generals, and they reported back on where the fortifications were and were not. And so this intelligence was used when we were planning D-Day. Uh, and these were other diplomatic systems that women were working. There was an African-American group of code breakers. The Navy did not admit women into the waves, which were um, created in 1942 until 1945. Um, but the Army, which was more a bit more inclusive than the Navy, had a, a segregated African-American code-breaking unit. These were also probably former school teachers. You can see that it's mostly women. They were breaking commercial codes that were being used by companies. Uh, companies and banks uh, like to transmit their messages um, in a secure way, just as they do now. They were using encryption back then, just as they're using it now. And these women were stripping down those messages so we could see who was doing business with, uh, with Hitler, or who was doing business with Message BC or other companies, uh, enemy companies that we weren't supposed to be doing business with. And so that was very important work as well. Uh, these women were actually doing cybersecurity. So they were encoding our military traffic to make sure that the enemy was not breaking our codes. Uh, and one of the things, one of the wonderful stories in the book is, um, I think, is that it was a group of women who planned a very successful deception program, again, before the D-Day landings. It was very important that the Germans not know where we were going to uh, where we were going to invade. Uh, and they anticipated an invasion, but we couldn't have them know that it was going to happen in Normandy. So these women studied our military radio traffic to the point where they could duplicate it exactly. They created a fictitious allied landing force that was um, theoretically poised at a part of England where it would invade Calais instead of Normandy. It was called the first, um, it was called FUSAG, the first USA Army Group. It didn't exist, uh, but they created radio traffic that convinced the Germans that it did exist and uh, so that the landing was anticipated to happen in Calais. And uh, they were so good at what they did that the Germans had to continue to believe this even after the D-Day landings uh, so that they wouldn't move their troops from Calais to the Normandy region. Uh, and so, meanwhile, the Navy, uh, the first group of women from the Seven Sisters were admitted to the Navy as civilians. And they did such a great job that the Navy creates the waves. It decides to um, admit women into the military. So most of the Navy women became Naval Reserve, uh, and the women from the, the colleges up here became officers. And, uh, and they, they were 
really highly placed very quickly because this, uh, co this, this group of code breakers, there were 4,000 women in Washington for the Navy. There were 7,000 for the Army. So it was huge. The women got, uh, got promoted to being lieutenants uh, pretty quickly. They had pistols. They learned how to shoot. They also had, um, they were doing incredibly important work, and they knew that, but they were also having a great time in Washington. And there was one, uh, the initial group of Wellesley women were assigned to a code group that was being used by Japanese, um, the Japanese Navy around the islands. And it was a code that changed monthly. And they were so good at breaking the code each month that they knew that they could throw wild parties in the middle of the month because they had broken the system. They had it down to a science. In the middle of the, the month, they could have total ragers. They could have a week or so to recover from their hangovers before. And I found this in an oral history of one of their male commanders who thought that it was hilarious. Uh, and and then then when the when the code system changed again uh, the next month, they would have recovered from their from their. Um, their hangovers, but uh, they they also, interestingly enough, they had a great time in Washington, and there was, but they had to, they couldn't have anybody know what they were doing at these giant compounds. So they were trained when they um, when they were asked. They were trained to say that they were secretaries, that they sharpened pencils, they filled inkwells, they emptied waste baskets, uh, and and. And because they were women, people believed that. In many ways, they were the ideal intelligence officers because people believed that whatever the women were doing at these giant compounds, it couldn't be important. Um, and in fact, the women in the naval facilities, they were breaking the giant fleet code that was used by the Japanese Navy. Uh, the most famous usage of our code breaking was the Battle of Midway, which is one of the most famous sea battles of all time. It was regarded as um, payback for Pearl Harbor. The Japanese were going to ambush us. They had a, um, a huge flotilla that was headed toward, the toward, toward Midway. It was our code breaking that, uh, that enabled us to anticipate that and to ambush uh, the enemy and to win that battle and to start to turn the tide of the war, although it would be a very hard fought uh, and bloody uh, effort, obviously, to take back the Pacific um, and, and to recapture islands also that the Japanese had taken. So these women, although they look like they're having a great time in the Navy facility, they were exquisitely attuned to what was going on in the Pacific. They were also breaking enciphered, encrypted uh, mathematical, numerical codes. The Navy, the Japanese Navy used a five-digit encrypted code. So you can actually see conveyor belts. So uh, they were working together to, again, strip out that that encryption, uh, to look for words like noon position. There was something that was called a Shogoichi message that was um, in which a Japanese uh, commander would say where he was going to be at noon the next day. So what better piece of intelligence for an American submarine commander than to know exactly where a ship, ship is going to be at noon the next day. So these women were also working very quickly, and they would know when we were, uh, when the Americans were trying, going to try to uh, either engage in a sea battle or take an island like Guadalcanal. And I found memos in the National Archives saying, you know, you, you recovered uh, 2,000 additives last month. We need you to recover more because something is about to happen in the Pacific and we can't tell you what it is, but we need you to work even harder and better than you did uh, last month. And I also found memos in which the women were congratulated for not only breaking their uh, breaking last month's record, but exceeding it. Uh, I interviewed one woman who said, you know, we could tell what was happening in the Pacific because the stack of messages would get even larger. And you can see the stack that the woman in the front has on her desk. And these are, I actually love these. These are some of the worksheets that, um, 
that the, that the women would do probably in their training, or this might have been an actual worksheet where there, you can see a code group, you can see an additive, and you can see the person who's beginning to piece out what the message probably says. Uh, this is, uh, this is that inner island cipher that the group of partying women from Wellesley were working every, um, every, every month. And, uh, I, I it was, I, I, I can't explain to you how it worked, but, uh, their, their revels were actually interrupted in April of 1943 when their work was used to, uh, to determine the itinerary of Admiral Yamamoto, who was the commander of the entire Japanese naval fleet. Uh, they were able to decipher his exact itinerary when he was going to be making a, uh, an inspection tour of some islands, and the decision was made to shoot him out of the air uh, and basically assassinate an enemy commander. That was seen as the ultimate payback for Pearl Harbor, and in fact, cheering went up in the code-breaking facility that the women were working in. So those um, those party and Wellesley women ultimately, you know, found themselves engaged in the most secret and the most important uh, work imaginable. And they they knew they knew what was happening, and and they knew the gravity of it. Uh, meanwhile, there was another group of women who were working the German naval codes. So they were working to clear the Atlantic of the German U-boats. That was an entirely different system. It was an entirely different cipher system. It was all letters. The Enigma machines, if you've seen the imitation game, you might know a little bit about the Enigma machine that every U-boat had in it. It would scramble the letters of a, of a German message. And so what the women had to do... Uh, and we eventually became really the senior partner in that effort. Britain was the senior partner at the beginning of the war, uh, but by the end of the war, because we had so much at stake as well, uh, among other things, we had to clear the Atlantic so we could bring all our troops over for the D-Day landing. Uh, but the... Um, the women would have to look at the scrambled message and try to figure out, what, again, what words might be like weather, weather in the Bay of Biscay, and then figure out what mathematical combination of rotors uh, would would have scrambled the letters to to produce what they were looking at. So these were early computer menus. They were essentially setting up early computer menus. They were also having, again, uh, these were women were having a great time in D.C. Um, these are some of the women actually in my in my book. They were sending a lot. Of, uh, a lot of photos to men. Uh, the the um, uh, they were sending a lot of letters to soldiers and sailors. They were uh, they were often getting engaged purely by correspondence. My uh, my Chatham school teacher actually became engaged to her husband uh, by corresponding with him over the course of three years. Uh, she, she he didn't know that she was actually writing about six men uh, at the at the time. Uh, he won. But um, some of the women were writing as many as 12 men because it was a it was a morale thing. They were actually encouraged to keep up morale for the troops. So there was a lot of letter writing. There was a lot of fr um, there was a lot of fun in Washington while they were doing this serious work. Uh, this again is my central character and her best friend, who was a school teacher in Bourbon, Mississippi, who got on a train. She was similarly recruited. She was a mathematician. She would go on to work for the NSA uh, for many years after the war. Uh, you can see her there with a bow in her hair, um, a really formidable mathematician who had been making so little as a school teacher in Bourbon, Mississippi, that she always described school teaching as a respectable way to starve to death. So um, those women were friends for the rest of their lives. And in fact, uh, you'll see um, my central character in the striped shirt with her husband, who she became engaged to by correspondence, her good friend, Carolyn, who she called Crow. And, uh, and, and Carolyn, uh, married a man uh, several years after the war, and she required that Dot come up and, and vet him, basically, before she would marry him. This is a group of Navy women who were so uh, 
so united by their code-breaking work that they stayed friends for the rest of their lives. And it was difficult for the women after the war. They were so gratified by their work. They were so fulfilled by what they were doing. They were also very stressed by what they were doing. A number of the women actually were privy to messages that told what was happening on their brother's ships or their fiancé's ships. And, you know, sometimes the news was good, and some of them were able to secretly tell their parents that they knew their brother was okay, although they couldn't tell them that they why, how they knew. Uh, and some of them, there was actually one woman in my book who uh, was the watch officer when they broke the message saying that her brother's ship was about to be hit by a kamikaze. So it was it was very stressful work. And this particular group of enlisted women, uh, because ultimately women who had not had the benefit of a college degree were able to enlist in the Navy. And if they had aptitude, they were routed to the code-breaking effort. So these were all enlisted women. Uh, and they uh, formed a friendship group. They were, they were lonely after the war. They were often married and having little babies living in small apartments with no appliances because all of our factories had been generating bombers and aircraft. Uh, and so they started writing each other something I'd never heard of called a round robin letter. And that's when I write a letter about what's going on in my day. I send it to the next woman. She sends both letters to the next woman. All three go to the next and it comes around to me again. I take out my original letter. I put in a new letter and um, they kept that going for 75 years that friendship letter. Uh, and when I was doing my reporting, you can see the woman in the front with the striped shirt, Ruth Mursky. She and one other woman were still alive and they were still writing to each other. I interviewed both of them. Unfortunately, one of them died during the course of my reporting, but Ruth is still alive. And her email is actually Ruth the Wave because that's how important this experience was to the women. And of course they're online and of course they use email because they were code girls then and they're, uh, and they're still very tech savvy in many cases now. And so I just wanted to conclude by playing uh, the interviews that I had. Uh, I, when I was researching the book, I, I did a lot of work in the National Archives and other oral history collections, looked at a lot of memos like the ones that you've seen, but I also interviewed as many women as I could, and the interviews were very, very meaningful to me. I became very attached to this generation of women. They were born in 1920, in many cases, the, the year that women got the vote. They lived through the Depression. Uh, they were very, very profoundly affected, and their families were during the Depression. They endured a lot of hardship. They got to college often by hook or by crook. They were incredibly patriotic, uh, and they didn't get credit for what they did. They, they were told that it had to be top secret. They were told they would be shot if they talked about it during the war. They were given a medal after the war. They were told never to show it to anybody. They were told never to speak about what they had done. Uh, you know, their husbands, if they came home from the war, were able to tell their children what they did in the war. Uh, but the women just had to listen and not say anything. So I just wanted to play a couple video snips of some of the women I interviewed uh, during the course of my reporting. So this is my school teacher. We're going to start with Dot. Um, I hope we're going to start with Dot. Oh, oh, wait, sorry. Talking about her first train ride to uh, Washington. It should uh, work on its own, but maybe it's not. Oh, should I go? Oh, go back and then, okay, yeah. They set it up before, um, before, uh, okay, so I'm going to go forward and then it should play, yeah, okay. It'll work from now on. We've got two suitcases, my umbrella, and a raincoat. I went down to the train. Now, my uncle had to take me down there. No car. 
and my mother and her sister were standing there crying when I got on the train. I was very secure that everything was going to be just fine. Washington would receive me with open arms. And the funny thing is, Washington didn't even have a place for her to stay. She got there thinking that the Army would provide her with quarters uh, while she was doing her work. And, in fact, she had to go to that place, Arlington Farms, and rent a room and call her mother and ask, uh, ask for some money in order to pay her rent. And this is the Cape Cod code breaker talking about how they recovered the added. Uh, but what you added, too, was that What was so great about that is that, you know, this is 70 years after she's done this work, and she remembers how the code system worked. She was actually able to show me the math that she did in order to strip out the, uh, the additives and, in fact, became a little, I think, impatient when I was a bit slow. To, and, and, I would say, and I would say, wait, you were adding or you were subtracting? Again, she would say, we were, we were zeroizing and adding. Uh, and, and so uh, it was just extraordinary to me the, uh, the immediacy of her recall, uh, again, something that she had never talked about. This is a woman who worked on the German naval uh, project. She wrote the Golden Office in many great things about Dorothy Romali, who still teared up when she remembered seeing all the boys being rounded up 
and taken to Pittsburgh, uh, is that after the war, she realized her dream of becoming a math teacher. She actually taught at the middle school, the public middle school in Arlington that my own children attended. Uh, I learned this during the course of my interview. I hadn't known it. And the thought that, you know, these middle school kids are learning Algebra 1 from Miss Ramali and not knowing that she had been this badass codebreaker during the war, uh, it just it just sort of blew my mind, the extent to which these women walked among us and never gave away what they did. Uh, even during the 80s and 90s, when many of the male naval officers and other historians began writing uh, about their own code-breaking exploits, the women never talked. And I think, you know, they were so good and punctilious about keeping this secret uh, that, as a result, the history was almost lost. And we find ourselves still having debates about whether women belong in tech whether women belong in Silicon Valley. We still have, you know, people positing the idea that, uh, that maybe women aren't biologically suited for, you know, the work of computer coding, when in fact this was cybersecurity that they were doing. These were early computers that they were running. These were computer menus that they were developing. And, uh, and so I'm just, I'm really happy that I was able to get to them, uh, well, their memories were still so amazing. And, uh, and, and, and I'm really happy that there does seem to be a wave of books like Hidden Figures, like Rise of the Rocket Girls, um, that, that I think is filling out this, this part of history that really has been, uh, has been untold and reminding people that not only do women belong in these technical fields, but that in many cases, women like these actually pioneered them. Uh, and so, um, I'd like to take questions now. Thank you.